Good morning. Well, we are moving along in the book of Hebrews. I think I may finish before it finishes me. And I really wonder, as I, as I look at it from my vantage point now, why I waited so long, so many years to get to it. It is indeed a great book. And as you know, we're in Lesson 29 in uh, this, and I have now titled this message, The Rest of the Story. It's changed two or three times, as always. <clears throat> and I've done this in honor of uh, Paul Harvey, in part. Paul Harvey died two weeks ago in Phoenix, Arizona, at the age of 90. And uh, you remember that one of his uh, techniques was to tell a particular news story, and then he would come back after a commercial. He would come back, and he would give you the rest of the story. And as I've thought about this text, <clears throat> I guess that's the way I, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 40, is the rest of the story. I actually had titled this message, Facing the Giants, and, and, uh, and dropped that one last night. <clears throat> and I was going to do that for a couple of reasons. But one of them is that when I look at the book of Hebrews and I look at men like Noah and Abraham and Moses, I find myself saying, that's not me. And, and so facing the giants is not facing the, the Philistine Goliaths. It's facing the giants of the faith, and they seem to tower so much above me that I wonder if there's any hope for me. And, and so I wanted to look at that text this way, but I realized that I was passing by, uh, in that title, I was passing by the first part of verse 32, and it seems to me that needs to set the tone. He says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me, and then he says, if I go on to do all those things. I was thinking about the last of the Gospel of John. Remember the last part of chapter 20, but especially in chapter 21. He says, in effect, many other things Jesus did, but if I were to write them, the world could not contain it. That's how much there is to say about the work of God through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our author is saying something similar here. He's saying, in effect, I've given you samplings of people, great people of faith. We talked about uh, Abel, and we talked about Enoch, and we talked about Noah, and we talked about Abraham a lot. We talk about Moses. And then he says, if I told you everything there was to tell, it just wouldn't end. Now, the reason I say that is I realized that when I came to this text, I saw this transition moving from, as it were, the heroes, the good guys, to what I would call the culls. You know, when you get down to these guys, Jephthah, Samson, you said, how did these guys get in here? You know, they slipped in through the door when nobody was looking. And, and so I tended to look at these guys as the bottom of the barrel. In other words, we've gone through all the good guys, and now we're at the bottom of the barrel, and we're sort of scraping on the very end. It's wrong. What this introduction tells me in verse 32 is, this isn't the bottom of the barrel, this is the tip of the iceberg, is it not? He says, if I had the time, I could go on and on and on with people of faith. 
So that ought to be, I think, the way in which we approach our text. Now, if you look at, 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 at our particular text, you'll see that things begin to change a bit. That is, he has started out in chapter 11 by looking at individual people and talking about specific events in their lives. When you come to this text, it's what I call bunching. He sort of clumps together. Not only these people, you've got, you know, these six named in, in, in verse 32, but then all of the triumphs are kind of clumped together and all of the sufferings are sort of clumped together in a batch. And it's because he doesn't have time to go into all of those in detail. So we move from sort of the individual to the bunched, if you would, and to some degree from the superheroes to the uh, less than such, the surprises. The men that we would not have expected to be in a hall of faith are, are there. And from the success stories that we've seen up to this point, to the sufferings with which the chapter ends. And he does not gild the lily in the sense of minimizing the kinds of suffering that people of faith are going to experience. So the way I look at the text in terms of its structure is this. Verses 32 through 35, the first half, 35a, is talking about faith and success. That is, you see faith and the victories that faith has produced at various times and through various people. When you look at the last part, verses 35b through 38, it's faith and suffering. It's almost the flip side of what we've read in the success portion of the suffering that's come about in the lives of many people because of their faith in God. And then you have in the final verses a sort of a summation of it all, and it seems to me that the word all is, is kind of a big part of that where he brings everything together. Well, let's talk about faith brings success in verses 32 through uh, 35a. In verse 32, you see the, the men of faith uh, brought together. You've got Gideon and Barak and Samson. Uh, you've got Jephthah and then you've got David and Samuel. And, and those are, uh, are rather interesting, uh, people. Uh, the common elements that we see there are interesting, and, and this is really thanks to Kent Hughes and his commentary. I would not have uh, thought of this myself, but he says these things. One, they lived in times when faith was scarce. Now remember, four of these guys live in the days of the judges. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> These were not the good times. This was not the time when living a life of faith was a popular uh, kind of thing. Uh, these guys lived in a time where faith was scarce. The things that happened happened in spite of overwhelming odds. In other words, conditions were not favorable to great things taking place. Just as an example, when you've got 300 men who are going to take on a mighty army uh, under Gideon, that is not what I would call favorable conditions. Uh, so these are overwhelming odds. And in many instances, these men stood alone. And in fact, when you think about Samson, that it's an interesting thing. I don't have much good to say about Samson. He's sort of like Jonah but it, to me in my mind. But it is interesting that Israel was at a point in their history where they really wanted to lie down and just take it. 
And, and Samson, not for pure reasons, but Samson would get on a rampage and he would go out and kill a bunch of Philistines. Then the Philistines would come attack. And, and the Israelites were saying to old Samson, knock it off, man. Every time you do this, we get in trouble. Then we got to fight. They really didn't want to. So in that sense, Samson stood alone in, in what he was doing and so did the others. It was obviously faith that won the victory in each one of these cases. <clears throat> and when you look at these men, they all failed. You know, you could, you could look at these guys and say, what a difference there is between, uh, David, for instance, and, uh, Samson. But you know, there's some common elements too. And the only question is the frequency of the infidelity. <laughs> Samson was a guy who had a habit of it, and David just fell into it, you know, in this one particular instance. But the reality is all of these men failed. You look at Samuel, failure within his family. So there are all kinds of things that we could say. None of these guys uh, deserve the Medal of Honor in terms of all of the elements of their life. Gideon was a guy who had to have not only the fleece once, he had to do it uh, for scientific purposes, of course. He had to do it in reverse to make sure that his evidence was, in fact, uh, correct. And he's the one who, after the victory is won, you remember, by the way, i got to say this, remember when God says, okay, you're going to go to battle, and if you are afraid... <laughs> well, there wasn't much question about that. If you're afraid, go down with your servant and listen. And he hears the enemy saying, man, we're, we're finished. Then that gives him the faith. But afterwards, remember, he takes their gold and whatever, and he makes an ephod, and Israel worships it. So you have to say, Gideon is not exactly uh, the, the hero of the day. Barak is the guy who says to Deborah, I'm not going unless you go with me. Oh, what, you know, this, this is the man of faith that we find in, in this chapter. Samson, we all know about. Uh, Jephthah's the fellow, remember, who makes the oath and who says, whatever comes out of my uh, tent, so to speak, uh, I'm going to offer that to the Lord. And he said, these guys are not the, uh, the, the upper rung of, of our mental fabric in terms of the people we would see in the hall of faith. But the miracles of faith are, are, are wonderful things. They conquered kingdoms. And by the way, I see these pretty much focused on the ones that are named here. These, these things that happen, happen through the lives of, of these men. Not to mention others, but through this group of people. Conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. Now, we have to put an asterisk there. God made what I would call short-term promises and long-term promises. He told Abraham, uh, not that he's in our list, but he told Abraham that he would have a son. But the ultimate fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, of course, were not yet fulfilled. So there's a sense in which we can say God fulfilled promises but the promises, that is, those ultimate promises that are heavenly promises, they have none of them yet received. But he did fulfill promises to, to these men. They shut the mouths of lions. We naturally think of Daniel, but we could, we could cite other instances from Scripture. They quenched fire. We can think of Daniel's three friends uh, that, that, uh, that were involved in that. They escaped the sword. 
And then when it says from, from being weak to strong, mighty in battle and putting armies to flight, I guess I see that as sort of a progression with a guy like Gideon. And, uh, and then women receive back their dead. And in that case, it doesn't appear to me to be focusing on the faith of the women because I don't, I don't think that's prominent, especially with, with Elijah and the, the widow of Zarephath. But nevertheless, it was through faith. Maybe it was the faith of the prophet, but it was through faith that those women received back their dead. So there were common elements in all of that, but there are also distinctions, different circumstances in which each one uh, is placed, different manifestations of victory that would be, uh, that would be uh, demonstrated, um, and certainly different people who God used and in whose lives he worked. All right, lessons to be learned. What should we learn from all of this? God accomplishes great things through faith. Is that not right? God accomplishes great things through faith. But it is not the greatness of the people who have the faith. It is the greatness of the God in whom they trust. These texts are not texts designed to glorify Samson or Barak or Gideon or Jephthah or even David. These texts are saying to us, look what wonderful things God does for such dirty, rotten scoundrels as these. And it's not works. Nowhere do we see they did these works and God responded because of them. It is through faith that God works and therefore it is God who gets the glory because he works through weakness to demonstrate his strength. When you think about today, uh, you'd ask the question, how many times does something really significant happen when God gets the credit rather than men? Not as often, I think, well, more often than we would like to see when men get the glory. Okay, look at, uh, at now the, sec- the third uh, point, Faith brings suffering with perseverance. This is almost the flip side, except in this instance, you're not going to have names put to this, and I don't think that's what the author wants. The author knows that if we are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, we can get names and we could put those in. But what he's trying to show is this is not just something that happened to a handful of people. This is something that happened to all the people of faith. And so you see this list of of things uh, through which they went. They were tortured, not accepting release to obtain resurrection to a better life. They experienced mocking, flogging, chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn apart, murdered with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. My goodness. I mean, is that not a fairly complete list of misery through which people went? He is not making this look uh, good. There is resistance to these people because of their identification with God. There is persecution. There is martyrdom in a variety of ways. Now, I have to tell you, being sawn in two... Uh, doesn't that immediately put your mind in terms of this magician, you know, in the box and whatever? Man, let me tell you, it is not like that, folks. 
Now, tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in half, and it may well be. But, you know, people were drawn and quartered and all kinds of things where they, they, they made it as nasty as it could get. This is not... Uh, can you imagine the, the court cases, you know, about cruel and unusual punishment? Now we worry about whether, uh, you know, electrocution or hanging is merciful enough, and so we try to figure out some painless way to, to make it go. These guys weren't into that. They were into, let's make them pay. And I'll tell you why. And the text tells us. It says, not accepting release. Now, here's a very interesting thing. This text tells us that the suffering of these people, at least many of them, was, was not involuntary. Uh, it was voluntary. In other words, suffering was their choice. Now, I get that because he says not accepting release. Now, I know there are times when, when they don't give you a choice at all. They just take your life, lop your head off, whatever it is, and, and you don't get to vote. But, but the real desire amongst those, especially who hate true faith, is they want you to renounce your faith. They want you to say, Jesus is anathema. And, and so you have this opportunity, and they say, here's what we are going to do to you if you don't renounce your faith. You have a choice. You can renounce your faith, and you can walk away. Or you can cling to your faith, and you can go this way. And this text tells us that at least in some cases, these people made the voluntary decision they would rather die a horrible death and he says, to obtain a, res a resurrection that's a better life. In other words, they were being offered life. We'll let you live if you renounce your faith. And these people were saying, that kind of life isn't good enough. The kind of life for which they are looking is the kind of life that Hebrews chapter 11 has been talking about. It is the life that looks for that heavenly city. It is that life that looks for God's approval and acceptance and eternity with him. And they're ready to lose this life for that one. They will not let that go. So all of these things are things that men have suffered on account of faith. Well, there's surely some lessons to be learned in this. We've said suffering is a choice. Secondly, faith does not guarantee peace, prosperity, and popularity. Faith does not guarantee peace, prosperity, and popularity. I don't care how many times you hear it on television. I don't care how many times you read it in books. This tells us that we don't know the outcome of faith in many instances. We don't know whether it's going to succeed in the sense that we have wonderful victories, wonderful deliverances, healings from sickness, raisings from the dead. Those are possibilities but we may just as easily see the flip side. Faith is that which not only may lead to suffering, faith is that which enables us to persevere in suffering. That's the point. In suffering is where faith becomes more demonstrable. Why would these people suffer like this for their faith? Because their faith is well-rooted in our Lord. I was thinking about instances uh, in the scriptures where this whole text would be denied. 
the Pharisees, uh, uh, in, in the New Testament time, the Pharisees basically believed if you were prosperous, if you had peace and prosperity and all those things, you were pious. That's just kind of another version of the prosperity gospel. That's why they felt they didn't have to help those who were poor and suffering is because God was punishing them. Why should I help make their 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 punishment easier when God is, is punishing them? But if they're rich like me, then then obviously they're pious. I think about Job. Job's friends just couldn't get this point down. They said to Job when he suffered, people who are good get blessed. And people who are bad get punishment. You're suffering. You did something wrong, and you better figure out what it is and fess it up. And what I love is the end of the book of Job. Because the end of the book of Job, it doesn't say, Job, you need more faith. It says to Job, you don't know whether your goodness will lead, your faith will lead to rewards or loss. But what you need to understand is the answer is not in your performance. The answer is in my sovereignty. And so the whole book of Job ends saying, trust me. I cannot tell you when you make an act of faith, when you, when you live out your life in faith, I cannot tell you what the outcome of that will be. It could be either one of these options or something in between. But I can tell you God in his sovereignty has purposed it. And that's where we rest, rather than to go back and to look and to say, did I not have enough faith? If I only had enough faith, I'd be better. That's agony. And it doesn't lead to perseverance. What leads to perseverance is realizing God delights in faith. And that may lead to difficulties. It may lead to deliverance. Boy, I love this statement. And and, and you remember John Piper uses this for his biographical series, Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. Is that not one of the most wonderful commendations of Scripture? These people who died were killed because people thought the world would be better without them. Good riddance. And the author says, these people were people of whom the world wasn't worthy. Now, that's an interesting taste. It's almost as though the author is saying, you know what, they weren't worthy of the world. Let's just take them out. Just take them out. And where do they go? They go to that reward for which they have been waiting and looking. So it is faith that produces perseverance. Now, let's talk about the author's Summation in verses 39 and 40. This is very, very interesting to me. He says, all of them were commended for their faith. Now, that's consistent with what we read back in verse 2, where it says, for by it, that is by faith, the men of old were commended. There is no other way to receive God's commendation than by faith. It is not by works. It is not by law-keeping. It is not by living a perfect life. And these guys certainly didn't. There's only one reason why God could look at these men, jerks that they were, messes that they were, and say they're commended. It's because they trusted in a God who was holy, righteous, and good, and in control, and had a reward for them. They're commended for their faith All of them. All of them. Now, that means there aren't other ways to find commendation, doesn't it? 
There is no other way in the Old Testament for someone to find God's favor than through faith. Everyone was saved. Everyone was commended by means of faith. And if that's true in the Old Testament, my friends, it's very true in the New Testament and today as well. Secondly, they did not receive what was promised. That is, all of them, or you could say it in reverse, none of them received what was promised. All of these Old Testament saints who lived by faith received the promises of that eternal kingdom, of that heavenly city, of those rewards that were beyond their death. None of them received those things before their death. They all died. None of them received them. And I would say to you, none of us have received those yet either, have we? We have not attained to the heavenly city. We're still in an earthly city. We're still living as strangers and pilgrims in this world. It's still future for us. So all of them, all of us, none have yet entered into those promises. Point C is where it may get a little more interesting. All must enter together, I say. I'm going to confess to you, I don't know exactly how to deal with this verse, but I, but I can't ignore it. And virtually every commentary I looked at, they sort of ducked it. They just sort of ducked it. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It, what it says to me, it, it, and generally the explanation goes something like this. When Jesus came and died on the cross, now all of us have sort of entered in. Well, I don't, yes, we've entered into salvation. Yes, we may be a member of his kingdom, but in terms of the celestial city and those promises, we haven't entered into that. And, and so it seems to me that what it's saying is something like this. That all of these Old Testament saints, they're sort of in line waiting. And the reason they're waiting is because they can't go in without going in with us. And so there's some sense in which Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are waiting to enter into this. And we'll enter into it together. All of us must enter together. That's why they had to wait. That's why we're waiting because, in a sense, those in our line aren't really complete until the last person's been saved. Then the door's going to open and we're all going to go in together. Now, that raises some questions that I don't quite know how to handle. And that is, I believe that the Bible distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles, between Israel and the church. I believe there's a distinction there. But I also believe there's a continuity there. And I think some ways of interpreting the scripture, you tend to look at the Old Testament and you immediately think in terms of law, not in terms of grace and not in terms of faith. This text tells us they are just like we are in that regard. People are commended by faith. It was not works then and faith now. It was not law then and grace now. It has always been by grace through faith. And in that sense, there is a continuity. The other thing that I have to say is when I look at biblical texts, I see this kind of a unity that doesn't, that doesn't have a, a sort of two-compartment blessing that says Jewish blessing and Gentile blessing Although, again, I'm not saying that the scriptures don't distinguish 
between promises to Israel and promises to the church. But I look at Ephesians 2 and 3, and it says, God has chosen to take these two that were once rivals, that uh, the Gentiles that were once separated from God, and He has brought them together into one new man. Now there's a unity there I have to, I have to come to terms with, because it is brought about by Christ. And that's a mystery that He speaks about in Ephesians chapter 3. When I look at Romans chapter 15, and it's talking about this, this business of, of dealing with our convictions and about our weaker brothers. That's a Jew versus Gentile scenario. And what he says in chapter 15 is, we must greet and accept one another so that we, verse 6, so that all of us with one voice will praise God. And so what you, I don't see a Jewish choir and a Gentile choir. In that sense, I see everybody. I come to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, and it talks about men who are from every tongue and tribe and nation, and they're all together praising God. And so I'm saying to you, however you take that, there is some sense in which we have a unity. And it seems to me that when people were going to be tempted to go back to Judaism, it's failing to see that point, isn't it? They want to go back into Judaism as though these are two different things. And he's saying, that's what God has done. Is he's brought you all together. How can you go back? It's like somebody who's 50 yards from the finish line and they say, I think I want to go back to the starting line and start all over. No, we're going to meet at the end, he says. So all of that is talking about what we have in common. Okay. So what have we learned about faith? We've learned that it's a firm belief in what is not seen. God is not seen. Heaven is not seen with the physical eye. It is a firm conviction about what is not seen. And it is the only means by which we gain God's approval. It is a belief in the unseen in the future, which changes our perspective of the present. We see ourselves now as strangers and pilgrims living in a foreign land waiting to enter into that that holy city and therefore living by the laws of our Lord above the laws uh, of anyone else. Not to ignore those laws, but his laws are always higher laws. I'm going to pause there for one second. Last week I talked about civil disobedience. And I'm not recanting on anything I said except for one clarification. The civil disobedience I envision in the future and which I see in, in, in Scripture is not active or violent in the sense of a trying to overthrow the government or trying to bomb abortion clinics or whatever it is. What I see is people who are, when they are commanded to be silent about Jesus, they refuse to do so. When they are commanded to do things that God forbids, they refuse to do so. And they are willing to pay the consequences. That may mean fines, it may mean loss of job, it may mean whatever, prison. It's passive, but there is a time when the Christian says, I cannot do this, I am a subject of his kingdom. And like they said, when, when Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down before my image, they have to say, I'm sorry, O king. I don't know whether God's going to spare me in this or not. I don't know whether my faith's going to lead to deliverance or destruction. It doesn't matter. I'm going to obey him. That's what I was talking about. Okay. So, success or suffering. Uh, faith is not based on our greatness, but on God's.
faith is not based on... Isn't that what this text is saying? You've you got to look at those and you've got to say, What jerks! And, 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 and not just some of them, all of them. They all failed. It's not because men do so well. It's because men who don't do well trust Him who does it perfectly. Faith is the means to perseverance. Now some practical lessons in living by faith. Salvation is the only means, uh, is only achieved by faith. If God's approval comes through faith, then there is no other system of salvation other than the system of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And people may be trying to work their way there. They may be trying all kinds of schemes. If it isn't by faith in the unseen God who has sent his seen son, Jesus, to die in place of the sinner, it is not salvation. God acts in response to men's faith. Isn't that something? Now, I realize that God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and he doesn't need our involvement. But when you look at this, look at all of the great things that God did. He did it in response to faith. We ought to be people of faith who are looking for God to do great things. We can't be presumptuous about what he'll do, but we ought to expect that God delights in it because he loves to bring glory to himself. And when God does great things through weak people who trust in him, we don't get the glory. He does. So, God acts in response to men's faith. People of faith are a motley crew. Man, if that doesn't come through loud and clear, we are a mess. And I'm talking about us, folks. If we all, if we laid out all the garbage in our lives, they'd have trucks lined up from here to the end of the city. We're a mess. And it isn't because we're so great that we come to worship It's because He has chosen to deal with us by grace through faith. But what it means is we ought to be free, not to spill all the garbage of our lives. We ought to be free and honest to say we are broken people. We ought to welcome other broken people to join us because that's what we are or were, and we're on our way to sanctification. But we're a mess, and and we see that in the Old Testament as well as in the New. God is not limited by the flaws of uh, men and women of faith. He works because he is great. Faith produces different results. I cannot tell you what your faith will, will man- how it will manifest itself, but don't expect it will always be painless. Always be prosperity. Always be the good life as, as we have come to think of it. Faith is manifested in many ways. That's the beauty of this. There isn't just one, now in terms of salvation, it's clear. Faith is manifested by our acknowledging that Jesus Christ died in our place and that he has given us his righteousness. That's true. But otherwise, in our lives, there'll be a whole multitude of ways in which our faith ought to be evident. Uh, because that's how God works. The need for faith arises in the course of our lives. Listen, folks, we don't really have to look, we don't have to, so to speak, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. (laughs) There are going to be all kinds of occasions when our faith 
is either going to be exercised or not, where we have to put up or shut up, where we have to say something for Jesus or we won't say it. Life presents us with problems. Daniel didn't go around saying, how can I be famous and put in Scripture? He just came to the place where he was put with his back to the wall and you either obey God and you pray or you give in. It's just that simple. God's going to produce the occasions where that happens. And in fact, God doesn't just let those happen by chance. His whole word is set up so that it requires faith. Think about this, Old Testament-wise. On the Sabbath, you you could not work. And, and I think I told you the story, but my grandparents homesteaded a place in Montana, and they were all ready to harvest their wheat. And uh, and I think it happened to be uh, on a on a Sunday, and and the the Monday it was a hailstorm and the whole crop was lost. If they had worked on the Sabbath, in that sense, if I got my days right, then they would have saved the crop. It takes faith not to work on the Sabbath. When you say you're going to let your ground lie fallow in the seventh year, folks, there's only one way that's going to happen, and that is you got to trust God. He's going to provide what you need. Uh, when you think about uh, no interest, charging no interest to your fellow Israelites, for some people, folks, that would be a real challenge. <laughs> How am I going to get ahead in life if I can't charge interest? <laughs> well, they couldn't. And uh, now I, I, I grant you, Gentiles, they got charged double. <laughs> that was another story. Uh, or they could have been. Uh, tithes. That was people giving, remember, the first fruits and so on? It's people giving, trusting that God will provide for their needs. The New Testament commands to love one another. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens by faith because some people are just not very lovable. To forgive takes faith. To submit takes faith. To get married takes faith. You ever think about that? No wonder people aren't getting married today. They're scared to death of what they might get in the long run. One has to trust God. Not trust God that he's going to make my mate the perfect one and fix all of their problems. But God is going to give me the grace to live in harmony in a marriage with my problems and my mate's problems. It's going to take faith to do that. When you think about what the scripture says about relationships, and it says when you see a brother overtaken in a fault that you are to confront such a one, suppose that you are the employee and your brother is the boss. It takes faith to obey what God has given us to do. And that's why he's orchestrated life in a way we ought to be coming to him all the time. Faith glorifies God, not men. And uh, I just tossed it in again. If you haven't gotten it already, whatever happened to the prosperity gospel in Hebrews? Well, it got smoked. Uh, Now, other thoughts. The author focuses only here on Old Testament women and men of faith. Some would say that it actually also includes the intertestamental period of the Maccabees. It may. I don't know. But basically, this is focusing on the Old Testament. We would say in reading the New Testament, looking at people like Stephen, that the experience of Old Testament saints is the experience of New Testament saints, is it not? And when you look at church history, you will discover 
that that stuff is still going on. God works in mighty ways, sometimes gives deliverance, sometimes gives marvelous miracles, sometimes gives suffering and death. But I really want to say this. We have brothers and sisters today who are experiencing all of those horrible things that we read about. All of those things are happening to our brothers and sisters now. And we dare not forget them. We ought to be thinking about them, praying for them, and giving to them in any way that we can. This goes on today. So what will the rest of the story be for you? God has placed you in circumstances where you must exercise faith or punch out of them. Not in the sense of some final way, but you have to make decisions. Will I speak for Jesus today? Will I live for Jesus in this job situation? Will I put myself on the line by saying I won't do this? What will faith look like in you? What will the rest of your story be? And don't give me the excuse that I give myself, Moses gave, you know, Lord, I'm just not one of those heroes. You do fit the job, the qualifications of the folks in our text, you fit. Trust me. You're there. I'm there. And yet God honors faith. I want to think of one more thing. I just, this is just a sort of icing on the cake. None of these guys wrote how-to books. I, I just, that, that thought just popped into my head, but I thought to myself, can you imagine Samson writing a book on, on how to to, to have victory over Philistines or, or, or Gideon, you know, uh, how to have courage in, in your life. Isn't that the mark of today? Every time we see somebody successful, we think they must have done something right. How many people are there who, when God blesses them, says, you know what, it has nothing to do with me? It has everything to do with God. I remember years ago at Believer's Chapel, in, in, in that period of time when people were, were, were flocking to hear the Word of God taught, people were coming to faith almost without trying to evangelize them. And somebody said to Howard Pryor, how do you explain the tremendous success that, that Believer's Chapel has had? And he said, in effect, I don't try to explain it at all. I don't think there is an explanation, and it certainly isn't us doing what's right. Isn't that, isn't that refreshing? Isn't that great? Not writing a book on how to have a big, successful, happy church? Because it isn't us. You want the answer in one word? Faith is what it's all about. And that may lead to wonderful success, and it may lead to suffering that you've never imagined. But faith will give you the perseverance to endure if that's your lot. Father, we thank you for this great text. Thank you that the people that we read about are people we can easily identify with. It wasn't their goodness. It wasn't their greatness. It wasn't their consistency. It was simply the fact that they trusted you. And that's what we want to do. Help us as a church to be a people of faith. Help us in this economy to be people marked by faith. Help us as we share our faith and evangelize others to be people of faith. Help us as elders to be men who lead in a way that that encourages faith in the members of this body. And if there's anyone here who has never come to faith in Jesus as the one who died in their place, 
who bears the penalty for their sin, who provides the righteousness that only you can give, who offers the gift of eternal life. May they trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.